every happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, what's new in history? Everything, Neil. Everything. History never stops, and neither do we. Got a whole new podcast coming up here. David, have you got something to tell us about? Ah, was I supposed to have something to tell us about? Yes, I've got something to tell you about. Oh, you can wing it, I'm sure. (laughs) All right, then. Let's get right to it. The question I asked to start the podcast is... Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's early April, 272 AD. The Roman Empire is in crisis. To both the West and the East, large portions of the traditional imperial territory have fallen to new and unexpected foes. Now, the Emperor Aurelian plans his counter-assault, and as he chooses where he will strike first, his eye is drawn to Zenobia, queen of the desert. Zenobia, queen of the desert. This sounds good already to me, so tell us a little bit about Zenobia. All right, but before I can tell you about Zenobia, I'm going to need to situate 272 AD a little bit in history. Okay, I guess that's fair since offhand I know nothing about 272 AD. So to start with, the mid to late 200s are not a good half century for the Roman Empire. They're having all kinds of problems, just left and right. Tax collection, civil war, You name it, the Roman Empire's probably got it going on somewhere. Everybody has a little bit of an off half century here and there. It happens, but it's never good to live through. And because of this, the Romans have more recently had a more specific problem. And that problem was Sasanian Persia. Now... The Romans had long been enemies with the Persian Empire. It was their traditional rival empire to the east. But in 260, with the Roman Empire seeming weak, the war restarted and the Roman Emperor Valerian marched off ready to try and, you know, beat back this particular threat. And instead... When he marched into battle, it was a disaster. His entire army was destroyed and he was captured. So what happens to Rome then when the emperor is captured? Well, nothing good. The first problem that immediately results is a civil war. But the civil war invites invasions from the various tribes on the Romans' frontiers, including ones that had previously not been allied with the Sasanians or at war with Rome. And of course, the Sasanian Empire is going to attack now that the 
Romans are weak, and it looks like everything is going to fall apart, and especially if you're on the traditional eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, it looks like you're pretty much screwed. Okay, so they've lost to Persia in 260. Twelve years later, David, what's now happening in Rome? Well, the big change over those 12 years is that the Persians have been dramatically defeated in battle, but not by Rome. Instead, one of their traditional allied city-states, a very small sort of part of the Roman Empire, sort of not kind of area that happened to be on the border, a city called Palmyra, rose up, founded their own army separate from the Roman army, and fought the Persians in self-defense under the leadership of a king called Odenathus. So there's a new player in the game. There's a new player, a new country that, from a Roman perspective, is coming basically out of nowhere. And it's ruled by King Odenathus and his wife, Zenobia. Ah, so this brings us to the Desert Queen. Indeed, Palmyra is a city in the desert, so when the Romans both have to acknowledge her importance, her title, but also don't want to give Palmyra, the actual state, a lot of recognition, we get this title starting to be used by Roman historians and later historians of the period, the Queen of the Desert. I think that might have backfired, David, because that sounds really cool to me. I don't know. It sounds like a pretty sweet nickname. So I don't know if that was the best decision in terms of trying to diminish her and her state. Tell us about her and tell us about Palmyra. Well, in both cases, we actually know as historians surprisingly little considering how important they are to history. Palmyra was a city-state allied with Rome. Sometimes when the Roman emperors were stronger, it was just considered a province of Rome. When they were weaker, it was sort of more independent formally. In practice, though, it seems like most of the time, Palmyra was a city that was far enough at the eastern edge of the Roman Empire that the Roman emperors were happy to let it basically run itself and have its own political independence. And Zenobia, because we know so little about Palmyra, we don't know a lot about her past. So where was Palmyra, David, just to situate where we are and what we're talking about? So Palmyra was in modern Syria, just to situate the Persians. Persia is an older name for what's now modern Iran, and Palmyra itself unfortunately doesn't map on to any modern city in Syria that I could try and direct your attention to. And tragically, even the ruins of Palmyra now have been destroyed. That's a very recent development, though. ISIS, in their campaign, when they seized so much of the Middle East and of Syria in particular, destroyed the antiquities there because they predated uh, the Islamic religion. Okay, so that at least situates us a bit 
more now. We know where it was in Syria. So what do we know about Zenobia? So the Roman historians, again, trying to put down Zenobia, and again, in a way that maybe to modern ears sort of backfires, claimed that Zenobia was actually from a commoner background, was not a noble, was just a woman so beautiful that she caught the eye of the king of Palmyra, Odonathus, and married him and became queen that way. Yeah, it's really hard, David, when people are just claiming that you're too beautiful. That, that happens, you know. It's, it's rough when people just say you're, you're way too beautiful. Modern historians actually think she was probably from a prominent noble family in Palmyra, and it was probably a fairly typical ancient nobility arranged marriage kind of deal. But claiming that she wasn't of noble background in Rome, in Roman times, would have been scandalous. And that's what they were trying to imply with that. But unfortunately, it's hard to say too much about her real background because so many of our sources are Roman and therefore biased. Well, us beautiful people have to stick together. (laughs) Why are you laughing? <laughs> All right, let's, let's maybe get back to the story at hand before you have any chance to debunk my personal history. So in 272 AD, now the entire might of the Roman Empire is going to be turned against Palmyra and Zenobia? It is. Ignoring, for the moment, all of Gaul, which would be modern France and modern Britain, which were still in rebellion in a separate civil war that was also going on, at the time, Rome was not in such great shape. But yes, Emperor Aurelian wants to bring down Palmyra. And I should mention, um, it probably sounds a little bit crazy to want to bring down the people who just rescued your entire empire from being crushed by the Persians. It does sound a bit crazy. But there's been a few developments between 260 and 272 the two big ones are that Odonathus himself still fighting with Rome and for Rome died on campaign trying to drive back some of the various tribes which had been taking advantage of the situation to attack Roman territory and Zenobia therefore became Regent for her four-year-old son, Vabalathus, who we won't really need to talk a lot about anymore because he was only four years old and Zenobia was pretty much running the show at this point. Was that unusual, David? Well, on the one hand, it certainly wasn't unknown. Aristocratic queens becoming regents for their underaged sons who were the heirs to the throne was something that the ancients would have been familiar with. On the other hand, this was a very extreme case because the heir in question was so young. Usually you'd only be talking about a woman being regent and the real power in a country for a year or two before somebody was old enough to inherit. But in this case, in theory, Zenobia had the potential to be queen for a very long time so really she's the one in charge now because her son is so young what's she gonna do about this 
Roman attack. Well, the first thing she does on inheriting the throne is actually start to expand her territory not in the direction of the Persians, where gains are slow and painful, but rather taking control of areas of the Roman Empire that had not previously been listening to and working with Palmyra, especially Egypt, which was a major and powerful element of the Roman Empire at the time, which she overran in a very short space of time, leaving her in command of roughly a third of the Roman Empire before it had started to break up. So these were military campaigns, David. She was actually attacking and conquering these places, not just, you know, diplomatic uh, maneuvering. A little bit of both. She certainly tried diplomacy wherever possible and won over a lot of territory in peaceful ways. But also in some places there was military resistance and she certainly was not shy about sending armies to secure anywhere she thought she had to control. So is she able to build up enough territory, enough power to become a major player here? Absolutely. At this point, she's in control of almost a third of the territory of the pre-Civil War Roman Empire. There's another smaller breakaway faction in the far west of the empire, meaning that her relative strength compared to the Roman Empire proper is even larger than that would suggest. And she's also inherited her husband's victories against the Persians, which were so successful so quickly that she doesn't have to immediately worry about any kind of threat to her east. So she's a very powerful person in the ancient world. And to the Romans, it's shocking because she's not someone who had been on their radar until all of a sudden she was just commanding this huge empire. Surprise! (laughs) So, David, this is all setting up for a clash with the real empire in the neighborhood, the Romans. How does it unfold? Well, the new Roman Empire, replacing Valerian, who at the start of all this mess was the one who got killed by the Persians, is Aurelian. And Aurelian initially leads his legions into battle against Palmyra, And one advantage he has is that the Roman legions are the best soldiers of their time. Spectacularly disciplined infantry and the advance is able to break the initial Palmyran defensive positions because of that. But as he advances, he starts to have trouble. Everywhere he goes, he's meeting strong resistance. The people are loyal to Palmyra. And as he slowly battles his way forward he's losing his best troops and he's not as good in this desert terrain even with his great infantry in the legions as the light cavalry that are loyal to palmyra and are better adapted to fight in the desert so why are light cavalry david superior in this instance to the roman infantry well the advantage they've got in very wide open spaces is that the traditional way that 
infantry beat cavalry in the ancient world was you pinned them against something so that they couldn't just retreat and then you could show that infantry fundamentally can be steadier if the men are trained properly than horses who are frankly very hard to train to actually want to fight because they're herbivores and they don't want to get stabbed which I can sympathize with. David, I know you don't like to be stabbed, but you're nowhere near being a herbivore. You're closer to being a carnivore. I'll admit, I do like my barbecued meat. But more broadly, horses don't do so well in areas where they can't retreat and move. But where there's a wide open space and they can maneuver, a good cavalryman in the ancient period with a bow, with a ranged weapon can avoid ever being directly brought into battle by infantry who are going to be slower than him because it's hard to outrun a horse but he can shoot at them and just keep doing that until eventually they're worn out and suddenly the cavalry is winning just retreating every time the infantry pursue and this is traditionally how roman empires got beaten by the persians and now it's how Roman armies were having trouble fighting the Palmyrans. So does this become a battle of attrition, David, with just, you know, small cuts, small little skirmishes, or is this going to come to a big head? Well, at this point, it looks like it's going to become a battle of attrition. The Romans are bogging down in a series of sieges as they have to take these cities and their problem is that the rules are very clear. The Roman Empire burns to the ground any city that resists it, that rises up in rebellion. But that means that all the cities in Palmyra have a really strong incentive to fight because they don't want to get burnt to the ground. Right, a classic sort of way that that tough punishment backfires. And this is when a weird connection to philosophy enters our story. I should have known with you that there was going to be a weird connection to philosophy. What is it, David? So there was this guy called Apollonius of Tiana, and he was sort of a philosopher and sort of a cult leader. Uh, more overlap there than you would really expect in the ancient world. And by this point, I just want to make clear he's been long dead. He would have been centuries before this period. But at this point, Aurelian, the emperor, is besieging Tiana, the city where Apollonius had come from. And he realizes that he wants to change direction. Instead of burning the city to the ground, convincing every other city to fight even harder, he wants to be merciful. But he needs to explain to all of his troops why he's changing positions like this without sounding weak. So he announces that he had a dream a dream of Apollonius of Tiana, where they had a debate, himself the emperor and this philosopher, as to whether or not he should burn down the city, and he lost, so he decided, I guess I shouldn't burn down the city then. Okay, so that's an interesting way of going about it. I would, uh, I would be open to more modern politicians telling us that they've changed their minds because they had a dream about an ancient philosopher, but regardless of that... Do his troops buy this? Do people go along with this idea? So in a modern society, you might think that everybody would say, no, that's crazy. We're not doing your ancient philosopher dream thing. 
but the Roman era was in many ways, okay, in only just this one way, a more enlightened time. And especially at this moment in Roman history, the crisis of the third century, as historians call it, there's a ton of people, the traditional Roman religion seems to be failing them because the empire is falling apart and the gods aren't doing anything and Jupiter's not showing up. And they're looking for new spirituality. Christianity, by the way, will do super well in this period, will grow very quickly. But Apollonius, who'd been a weird cult leader in his day, also had sort of a religion going on. So when the emperor said he'd talk to him in a dream, everybody was like, well, I guess he might be a god. So sure, this seems reasonable. So they agreed. They changed strategy basically on a dime switched from a purely military offensive to more of a diplomatic effort to convince a lot of the cities that had sided with Palmyra that actually they wanted to back Rome in this fight. And how does that go? Do the cities start to buy into this? Well, this is when things go bad for Zenobia because the cities traditionally have been either allies or members of the Roman Empire. So they're used to the Romans winning. They're used to working with the Romans. Palmyra, to them, is the new weird power. And suddenly, all kinds of cities are starting to desert, and even the ones that remain loyal now have a double problem because any cities around them that have deserted back to the Romans are putting more troops into the field for the Romans, even as they take troops away from the Palmyrans. So does Zenobia have a counter to this, David? Does she have a proposal to try and keep these cities on her side? She does not. She's in a grim plight, and she knows it. And so she tries the most desperate tactic of all. She tries to send a diplomatic mission to the Sasanian Empire in Persia to recruit as her new allies to replace these alliances that are falling apart, the very same force that her empire had initially been founded to fight against. So she's won. Her husband won these victories against the Persians. They took all their land from the Persians, and now they want the Persians to be their buddies. That is her last desperate card to play. Surely the Persians weren't about to jump on board with her. It's hard to say. Some sources indicate they might have been interested. Certainly they had a lot of territory they wanted to get back and no reason to believe that Aurelian wanted to give them any territory at all. But also, Zenobia, as you've pointed out, was their enemy. And so as the Persian court debated as to whether they wanted to go for it or not, Aurelian's fast-moving troops took that decision out of their hands. Well, that's probably the best way it could have worked out for Aurelian to get there first and uh, not let the Persians get involved in this war. What does he do? Where does he end up? Well, he marches on Palmyra, the center of the rebellion, and he convinces a faction inside the city that they too should desert back to the Romans, that they're doomed, there's no way they can win, and they'll be better off turning over Zenobia and surrendering. And they agree. 
Zenobia is actually attempts to flee the city, but is captured by her own troops and hauled to the Romans in chains. Not a good way for it to end for the Desert Queen. No, it's not. And for Palmyra itself, only a year later, there's more infighting in the city as the Roman promises aren't always kept and a large, large proportion of the city wants to go back to their very brief glory days as running a massive empire of their own and Aurelian finding this inconvenient and dangerous decides to destroy the entire city rather than take any risks so even the men who sold Zenobia out ultimately don't really profit from their efforts this turns out badly for everyone not for the Romans okay what does it do for the Romans well the Romans finally get their chance to staunch some of the bleeding that all of their crises have been causing them. With Palmyra back on board, the Persian frontier finally quiet, Aurelian does another campaign, reconquers Gaul and Britain, he manages to stabilize the frontiers at least, even if he can't stop all of the tribes outside from invading Rome, at least he can hold most of them back. And Rome will go on to have another 200 years, roughly, of being an empire, which for a brief period there, it had looked like they were not going to get the chance. And all because the emperor had a dream about a philosopher, or maybe made up a dream about a philosopher, but basically managed to use this ancient philosopher to his benefit. Exactly. Thanks for telling us the story, David. Always happy to, Neil. We hope everyone will follow along with us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at WhenArtThou is our handle. You can send us an email, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. And of course, our website is obrother.ca, which brings us to the point in the podcast, David, where we like to play a quiz. Are you on board? I suppose I could be talked into doing a quiz. So for today, David, I got my hands on some social media accounts of some historical figures. Uh-oh. I got my hands on the Facebook and Tinder accounts of five historical figures. So we'll, we'll do a quiz here. Would you like to play with Facebook or Tinder? I feel like Tinder might be more fun. All right. So for those who don't know, Tinder is a dating app. There's pictures of people and you swipe left to say no you don't want to date them or right to say yes you do want to match with them and date them and I got my hands on the tinder profiles of five historical figures David I'm going to read you those tinder profiles and see if you can guess uh, which historical figures are on this dating app all right sound good let's try it all right the first one's pretty easy here <clears throat> here's the uh, tinder profile it says looking for wife number seven if you can't bear me a son swipe left Honestly, you should swipe left for Henry VIII, uh, even if you think you can. Yeah, yeah, probably a good strategy unless you want to have an executioner swiping off your head. All right, next one, David. Uh, this Tinder profile, really short and simple. It says, uh, turns out we're all animals. Turns out we're all animals. Is that Charles Darwin cruising Tinder? Charles Darwin himself. He's, uh, he's trying Tinder to uh, see if he can figure out how those tortoises came about all right david our next one this one uh going with a different tactic on his tinder profile 
it says, Eureka, you're the one. Swipe right. Eureka. That wouldn't happen to be Archimedes, would it? It is indeed the uh, famous ancient Greek there trying out Tinder, seeing if he can uh, have a match. This one's a bit trickier. It says, want to be famous for 15 minutes. I don't know if I'm willing to swipe right on Andy Warhol or not. You got it figured out there, of course, his famous quote that in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. One last Tinder profile here, David. You're four for four. You're doing you're pretty good on Tinder. Have you been spending time on Tinder? <laughs> All right. This last one says, let me be the light of your life. Very sentimental for Tinder. Indeed. And I'm really not quite sure who it is. That one is uh, Thomas Edison. Ah, should have known. Yeah, hopefully he won't match with Topsy the Elephant. <laughs> All right, David, that's the end of our quiz for uh, some social media, some Tinder bios of historical figures. Thanks for playing along, and we hope everyone will listen uh, next time because we've got some Facebook status updates from historical figures here for you as well. Thanks for playing, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs>